Thanks for joining us today on Mormon Land, where we explore news in and about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I'm senior religion reporter Peggy Fletcher Stack. I'm joined again by managing editor David Noyce, who oversees our faith coverage. Hi, Dave. Hi, Peggy. We invite you, our listeners, to show your support for Mormonland by going to patreon.com, where, with a small donation, you can access transcripts to our podcasts, our complete newsletter, and all of our exclusive religion coverage. Again, that's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Mormonland. Now for today's show. It's the month for Valentine's Day, the time when many American couples turn to romantic thoughts and gestures. Think chocolates and roses. What better occasion to think about the nature of Latter-day Saint marriages? Bethany Brady Spaulding and MacArthur Krishna, authors of the best-selling series titled Girls Who Choose God and Guides to Heavenly Mother, have spent years exploring the influence of the divine feminine in the beliefs and practices of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Now they have turned their attention to a divine couple, heavenly parents. They're deeply committed to the idea that marital equality is not just a human construct, but also an eternal truth. In their new online workbook titled In the Image of Our Heavenly Parents, A Couple's Guide to Creating a More Divine Marriage, Balding and Krishna, as well as experienced Latter-day Saint therapists, explore these religious role models and 12 principles for improving marriages. They join us today via Zoom, along with Jennifer Finlayson Fife, a Latter-day Saint therapist in Chicago, to discuss the new book and how earthly couples can construct heavenly marriages. Welcome to you all. Thank you so much. So happy to be here. So my first question to you three is, what made you think of modeling marriage after heavenly parents? So to me, it was, we always are thinking about new ideas. And when you feel a confluence of different ideas coming to one place, that's when you know you've got something in the works that can that can make a new book or can make a new art project or whatever Bethy and I are cooking up. And in this particular instance, it was a confluence of a number of things. Uh, one was the Gospel Topics essay on Mother in Heaven that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints posted actually has a lot of information about what Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother's relationship looks like. And I didn't realize that until I started reading through and, and thinking about all of the indicators and all of the um, information that that essay gave us about that relationship. So I called Bethany. This is what, what we do, right? She calls me, I call her and, and we go back and forth. And then Bethany tells me what's going on in her brain about marriage. Do you want to add anything, Bethany, to that? I think in the church, we talk a lot about the importance of God, of course, and we talk a lot about the importance of marriage. But I think it's so beautiful that we can intertwine those emphasis that we Latter-day Saints have this re revealed and restored knowledge that God is married and that God is Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother as a couple and that we believe in a partnered God. And that's so, so beautiful. And so we thought, why not take this example of, of Heavenly Parents as a couple and aspire to be like them? And how do we do that best is in our marriages. Um, you know, years ago, Elder Oaks gave this really beautiful charge to us where he says, our heavenly parents, are, um, our theology begins with heavenly parents and our highest aspiration is to be like them. 
And so we just reflect a lot of how do we be like them? And, and one way that we can reflect and emulate and model after them is to, is to practice partnership in our marriages. And so that was really the, the doctrinal foundation and push for it. And then um, I just um, recently listened to a interview with Desmond Tutu, who is uh, the Archbishop of Cape Town and one of my spiritual heroes. And, and he was speaking right before he passed away about a year ago. And he said, one of the most powerful things that we can teach anyone is that we are created in the image of God, that nothing is more powerful, transformative than that truth. And I just was really struck. We hear that a lot, but I think if we just pause and remember, like that we are created in the image of God, of our heavenly mother and our heavenly parents, even, our, our heavenly father, even the prophet Brigham Young said, we are created in the image of our father and of our mother in the image of our God. Mm-hmm. And so I just love that. Um, we, we hope that couples can just find a lot of power and aspiration and hope um, looking towards our heavenly parents uh, to improve their marriages. Okay. I'm going to push on that a little bit though. I mean, what do we actually know about their marriage besides generalizations and platitudes? Do we know anything really? So whenever Bethy and I dig into a topic, our first question is, is there enough here? Right? So we wrote the girls who choose God about women in the book of Mormon. If we can write that book, we really feel like we can write any book. (laughs) (laughs) So we started to get in and asking the same sort of question about what do we actually know? What do we actually know? And so digging through the church's website, keyword search, heavenly parents, you actually pull up dozens and dozens of different thoughts on heavenly parents. And it is completely invigorating. Now you could do this yourself or you could go to our book because we compiled lots and lots of these ideas into the doctrinal foundation of the book. So we start the book to answer that very question, because honestly, I think a lot of people would have the same question. So we start our book off with the doctrinal foundation. What do we actually know? And honestly, we only have two pages of quotes, but there were dozens of quotes about what do we know about our heavenly parents. To me, some of the most profound come from the Gospel Topics essay, where it talks about our heavenly parents are side by side. Our heavenly parents work together for the salvation of their children. Our heavenly parents designed the plan together. So for me, having these different ideas, even those three ideas, much less everything else we found, was revolutionary for me to consider what should my marriage look like. Hmm. Do you have others that you want to... Was heavenly mother involved in the creation of the world? I don't think any of us know the answer to that. But we definitely know from Elder Ballard that it says we are part of a design plan designed by heavenly parents. So absolutely. Even in the most recent general conference, um, Elder Soares taught that the restored gospel of Jesus Christ proclaims the principle of full partnership between women and man, both in mortal life and in the eternities. Like that is just laying it down straight. Like there's full partnership in any relationship. And that's, that's the divine pattern is, is full partnership. And so surely heavenly parents reflect that and, and, and um, are that. And I think that's beautiful. In fact, if you wanted to spend the entire time of the podcast, it'd be very dull. But if you want to spend the entire time of the podcast, having us just read quotes for you, we could. Like there are that many. And so we have lots and lots where it talks about how our heavenly parents operate together. And it is, for me, super inspiring, right? When we're told by Elder Oaks that our theology begins with heavenly parents, our highest aspiration is to be like them, then in my mind, it behooves us to find out more about them. 
And so lots of digging around and looking and reading meant that we compiled a whole bunch of um, doctrinal foundation for this thinking. But to us, the main point of all of the quotes we found is our Heavenly Father and our Heavenly Mother work together, that they work in partnership. And so there's some specifics around that that we also found. But to me, that's an overarching idea that needs to be reflected in how we model that in our marriages today. And of course, those quotes appear at the start of essentially every chapter. Uh, you 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 give uh, a different quotes from different church leaders. Um, the book it, it talks about this is aimed at heterosexual couples. Why did you decide to exclude same-sex couples? And would these principles be the same? Would they be different in any way? So this is something that we really, um, we almost didn't write the book because we did not want to create something that felt like it was an exclusion. Except then I went and I talked to two people who know more about um, non-heterosexual marriages than what I do. And their advice I thought was dead on. So one of them told me that in her marriage to a woman, that she does not wrestle with these same issues. She said the institution of marriage for two women is relatively recent. And so they're not carrying the baggage of cultural expectations of what roles should be. And so she said, we have lots of things we have to figure out, but equality in roles is not one of them. And so she did not feel that this was particularly an issue that would, um, that would concern people. Now, I personally think equality between men and women is applicable across the board, not just within marriage. It can be within our work relationships, between our professional careers. I mean, there's lots of ways that this equality matters, but not every book is for every person. And so we talked to Tom Christofferson and we said, should we do this? Like, we don't want to be exclusive. And he said, no, there's lots of people within our faith that are in a heterosexual marriage, but wrestling with the results of those heterosexual marriages that carry um, cultural baggage in a different way. It's worth writing. And so we just want to be clear that we're not trying to exclude, but we're trying to be clear that not every book is for every relationship. Jennifer, to that point, to bring you in, the, the, the book warns that, quote, inequality is one of the greatest threats to Latter-day Saint marriages. Why, why is that? Why is equality so important in a marriage? I think if you want a role-based marriage and you want a marriage that just achieves certain tasks, well, you can probably get by without equality. But if you want an intimate marriage, right, if you want a marriage that is about a soulful partnership, which I think many of us desire, whether or not what we're doing will create that, then you have to be on equal footing. You have to be able to be choosers. You can't, you know, you you can't if you don't have the same economic equality, the same opportunities as your spouse does. Well, then you aren't really in a position to choose and invest in the person because you need them. And so if you want marriage to be based on a foundation of desire and choosing, which the couples I work with all want that, you have to look at the ways that inequality are operating in the marriage, uh, even if it's unwittingly, even if people don't even realize they've inherited meanings that are keeping that inequality in place. But wouldn't you say that probably most marriages have some level of inequality, even uh, really good ones? 
Yes. So what I would say is, and this is, I'm sure, true in same-sex marriages as well, is that when we are immature, which all of us are in a developmental sense, the more immature we are, the more likely we are to create hierarchy within partnerships. So that is to basically need to be needed or to look to the other person to manage our sense of self. And so we very quickly create these kinds of one up, one down relationships as a way of managing a fragile sense of self, even if you're in the one up position, like I need to feel superior to you to feel good about me. So couples readily do this and they will often gravitate to meanings in the culture to justify it or to give them signals about who they should be as a wife or a husband. So it's a part of human behavior, but the more that our theology is um, elucidated and brought to us in a way that pushes against that, the more chance we have to actually create healthy, sustainable marriages. So you've already answered this a little bit, but say something more, Jennifer, about how equality makes a marriage stronger. How do you? Yeah, well, so there's maybe at least two ways that I would think about it is that, you know, Jennifer, can we pause for one second? Sure, please. I want you to answer that question, but I think there's an amazing quote um, to first define equality. So Bethany, can you read the quote you shared with me about what does equality look like? So let's start there. Like there's different types of equality. And so before we can say what makes why it's important in a marriage, let's actually define what we're talking about. Yeah, great. Sure. As we prepared for this book and researched, you know, Richard and Linda Iyer, like Jennifer, are really some of the luminaries in our Latter-day Saint tradition of, and who have written and researched and taught and inspired us on our marriages for decades. And um, he did a beautiful job in a recent um, Meridian magazine article where he said, the thing to remember is that there are two kinds of equality. The first is competitive equality, which keeps score, which harbors resentment and resistance, and which often defines equality as sameness. The second is synergistic equality, which seeks complementary oneness and both recognizes and relishes compensating differences and which produces outcomes and results that are greater than the sum of its two parts. So I just, I really love this, this concept of a synergistic equality. We're not looking for sameness or exactness. We're looking for um, the equal valuing to help us thrive and feel alive and fully ourselves and, and becoming godlike. But now we'll turn it over to you, Jen. Yeah, no, it's it's brilliant because it's exactly the right point. Like when couples partner, same sex or not, they tend to look for differences. Introverts tend to are drawn to be extra, or tend to be drawn to extroverts, and people who are more spontaneous are often looking for someone who's more ordered, and they instinctively look for difference. And I think there is a wisdom in that because, first of all, if you can bring your strengths to the marriage, and those you know, are really allowed to um, grow there that with children, children have more access to the strengths of their parents and the couple has more access to the strengths of the couple. So it's just wise to allow people to thrive for the benefit of the whole. Um, And so, but the other thing is that, you know, if the people that are happiest in marriage So something I teach a lot is that as human beings, we want two things that seem to compete with each other. That is that we want to belong in a partnership. We want to belong in our faith community. We want to belong in a family. We want to belong. So 
But we also want to belong to our individuality. We want to belong to our own talents, gifts, opinion, abilities. You know, we don't want our agency to be squashed in our efforts to belong. And so a lot of times our view of like oneness or Zion is you just have to mesh into like nothingness. You have to like fold into what everybody else wants, have the same opinions. And that's more like, you know, hell than it is like heaven (laughs) because (laughs) because we want to belong, but we don't want to lose ourselves in the process. And so what I think is so growth promoting about marriage and why for me it really works as a divine model is because in order to be happy, the marriage or the society or the family has to grow into an entity that can accommodate the best in its individuals. That's what the body of Christ metaphor is, right? Is that you can be uniquely who you are, but in a way that the collective is strengthened. So I think that what we do when we're immature is we want to prevail or we want to just submit and hide in the demands of the other. Both are immature and they thwart growth. And so if we can learn how to make room for two people in a marriage, for the best in two people, for their wisdom, their strengths, their abilities, well, the both are better for it in the collective sense, but each individual is happiest. The most happily married people feel like they can belong to themselves and be married and they can grow and, and grow into their strengths while being married. And for me, it's also about the end game. So you're talking about happy marriages now, which I think is vital. We talk about the strength of family, the strength of marriages. Those are something that's um, important to our church. But I also think about the end game, about who we're becoming. If men and women both have the opportunity to fully invest in their soul development, then that means at the end of our life, we'll be more godlike. We'll be more fully developed as humans. And so we need both parties in those relationships to have the space to develop, to become more godlike. If that's the, if that's the goal, that's why we're here on earth, then marriage is a mechanism to assist with that. If we don't have equality, literally, you cannot become godlike. Mm-hmm. Bethany, did you have anything you wanted to add to that? Oh, um, I would say that uh, what we really tried to do in this book is to flesh out 12 principles to help us build our partnership muscles because there's so many aspects and dimensions of equality. I um, you know, whether it's how we use our time or our resources or who makes decisions or who has spiritual stewardship or um, all, all of those things. And so we, working with a framework that Dr. Julie Hanks had developed in her dissertational research on partnership marriages, we put together this list of 12 principles um, that couples can take one a month and um, take that principle and learn about prophetic revelation but what have church leaders shared um, these doctrinal truths um, that can inspire us? Then we have the um, professional expertise from one of the therapists where they'll write and give example of their own lives from some of their clients and insights into this issue and how to develop equality in that principle. And then what's a beautiful part of the book is that for each principle, we have practices because we know that truth, unless we apply it, doesn't change our lives. And that we have to really get down and do the work if we want to build our partnership muscles and build divine marriages. And so each principle has practices um, that a couple can work on to reflect on where they're at, where, the, where they're missing, where they fall short, um, where their growth areas are. And um, they're really fun and challenging practices um, in helping us become like our heavenly parents. Um, uh, the newly enacted temple ceremony, without going into great detail, 
of course, uh, reinforces equity in marriages um, uh, that was just um, instituted this week. How, how can such messaging like that in temple ceremonies, uh, uh, for instance, help, do you think? I think that we've long been living in a world that's a fallen model. So all around us for millennia, we've been hand, we have hand-me-downs from that fallen model. And we don't look for the world to be our model, right? We look to divinity, deity to be our model. So the more that our faith in our practices, in our ceremonies, in our sacred places, as the temples one, as you brought up, the more that they reflect the deity model, then the healthier marriages can come because it'll steer us in the direction that we need to head the model we need to emulate in order to become more godlike. So, you know, uh, we've talked a little bit about this already, but, you know, many partners may think that their relationships are equal, but they may not be, of course. So what does equality actually look like, uh, Jennifer? Well, I would say uh, you know, it's interesting when I did my dissertation research, I would the women who really were thriving in marriage, they they might have said their husband was the leader of the home, you know, perhaps, and, and when I would push them on what that meant, you know, he was maybe the one calling on who said the prayer, maybe he gave the blessings to the children and things. But when it came down to economic decisions, familial decisions, career decisions, they were shared decisions. They would both fast and pray. They would both, you know, come to the table as partners. No one was exercising power over the other in this. One was not backing out and letting the other decide. So they operated like, you know, the women who thrived in marriage operated like their voices mattered as much as their husbands did without question. And they weren't waiting for their husbands to give them permission for that they they owned it within themselves. And so there wasn't sexism operating in the marital dynamic of choice and decision and what affected both people. Mm-hmm. It, I, I remember there's a, a chapter in there and it has a graph and it, it, it was about decision making. Mm-hmm. And, you know, most people would think, OK, if a couple comes together and they're trying to make a decision about something and one partner wants one thing, the other wants something else. You would think compromise would be the ultimate thing you would want. But I learned from that chapter, no, what you really want is collaboration. Could could one of you elaborate on that? What's meant by that? Want me to say something? The therapist question. And then this was <laughs> it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, what what I think of is compromise as you meet in the middle. You split it down the center. You know, you get a little of what you want, I get a little of what I want. The thing is, there's a lot of things in marriage in which you can't agree to disagree or you can't you can't have half a baby. You know, you either have a baby or you don't have a baby. You move to Texas or you don't move to Texas. You know, there's just a lot of those things that push couples on who who's going to win in this. I mean, that's what it pushes for. And if your goal is to make room for two people to thrive well, then you have to raise your functioning up as a couple and not ma- get out of the competitive model, right? Like I know couples I've worked with where, you, okay, you move to Texas, let's say, but I'm going to resent you every day that we're there, you know, because you got what you wanted. And that's an immature competitive model. Collaboration is, okay, 
I don't necessarily want to move to Texas and I recognize there may be things I have to give up. But if I'm being honest with myself, I think ultimately it is the best choice for us for you to advance your career by moving here. And therefore, we recognize that I will be paying perhaps a bigger price, but we believe it's the right thing. That's collaboration. So you're bringing your better selves to create choices that ultimately allow the collective to thrive. You're bringing your different gifts, your different abilities, but you're you're bringing and doing your part to create something stronger for the whole. Makes me wonder if there's a lesson for Congress in there somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) I also think that's one of the strengths of this book is it talks about equality in 12 different ways. And there's more. I mean, there are things that we had to weed out. And so it's not that it's not a check. Yes or no. Do you have an equality marriage? It's not. Yes, no. Right. But it's like, oh, we are good at being equal partners in making decisions. We're poor at being equal partners in resource investment. Mm-hmm. We are good at this. We're about at that. And so having this idea that this checklist, not a checklist, but this list of principles gives you a chance to evaluate from really varied angles. And it might surprise you. You might come to yourself and be like, no, no, I really function as a showing up partner here. So one of the reasons Bethy and I write books is we write books about things that we need, right? And so whenever we started this process a few years ago, it was partially because my husband and I were moving from India to America, and we had to set up for the first time in our marriage, a whole different way of being. I made a list of all the things that have to happen to maintain an American household. Now, frankly, this is different than the things that have to happen to maintain an Indian household. No one in my America household has to go out and check to make sure that the burrows for the cobras have been filled. All right, that's not a to-do list in our marriage currently. But my husband's like, we have to clean gutters and we have to, you know, sweep the sidewalk. No, we're not moving to snow. I'm not sweeping snow. Like, so we had this long list of like, what does it mean to set up a household? I mean, this was 10 years into our marriage, eight years, eight years into our marriage. We had to do this. And I had, it was this kind of pause and reset moment where I thought, what kind of marriage do we want to have in a whole new arrangement? Right. And for some of that, it was eye opening. So a woman said to me, well, my husband works outside of the home and I work in home. So I don't see what the problem is with with me having to be responsible for all of these things. And if if I hadn't been researching and reading about this book, I wouldn't have had an answer in my head. But after reading about this and listening to these therapists, I could say, oh, wait a second. Your husband works maybe eight to 10 hours a day. And so that means when he comes home, you've also put in your eight to 10 hours a day. You've worked. So even if your work is in one way and her work is in a different way, you hit 6 p.m. or 7 p.m. at night and you've both put in a full day. So instead of saying someone works eight to 10 and someone else works 24 seven, right? That's what we're talking about here. So instead of saying you have the role to financially provide, you have the role to take care of all things house related, You say, wait a second, here's what my talents are. Here's what I'm going to contribute. Here's what's left over that no one really wants to do. No one really wants to go fill those cobra holes, right? So like, how do we make sure that we divide out the things that need to be done just for the necessities of our family life? And for me, the reason I was interested in all this is because I had a chance to think about what it actually meant to build 
uh, a new kind of marriage. So for me, even eight years into a marriage, super productive for me to learn from these therapists and, and hear their expertise. So one more question for you, Jennifer, after, after more than 20 years as a therapist, what, what trends have you seen among Latter-day Saints marriages? Mm. You know, it's interesting. I I think when I first started out, there was very little challenge really um, to the idea of roles and women being more in a kind of supportive role relative to the husband. And, you know, and then as I started doing my work, I would see couples come in more. They would talk with some of the language of equality but they really were not operating that way. Um, they just, they, they maybe had the way to sort of talk as equal partners, but in terms of what they actually did, there was often a lot of this sort of deep hierarchy still going on in their psyches. I mean, just to speak to that for a minute, like I paid my own way through college. I paid for my own mission. I didn't marry until I was 29, but like speaking to these role models that MacArthur was talking about, like, or, or just this idea of having in the temple an ideal of an, you know, you, you inherit it. And I had inherited this inequality. So even though I'd operated very independently, I got married and started getting into the passenger seat of the car, just intuitively. I started saying, well, John says we should do blah, 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 you know, like, because I was just like pulling for wife model and living in wife model as opposed to how do we work out a partnership? So I've just seen people starting to like grapple with it, but I have seen more recently men and women really understanding at a different level. Like if we're going to have something good, if we're going to have an open hearted, passionate marriage, we got to, we've got to eradicate this from the way that we operate as a couple. And so I see people just being much more willing to look at themselves, to challenge some of those traditions and to try and create something a lot stronger. Oh, what about you, Bethany? What are you seeing? Well, I'm not a therapist or an expert on marriage, but I do observe a lot of marriages and relationships around me. And um, here's what I see. I optimistically see a lot of couples entering what Brother Richard Iyer calls the third phase of marriage. I want to draw on some of his expertise again. Um, Brother Iyer calls like the first phase was traditional marriage, where there was a lot of commitment, but there wasn't always much freedom or support or partnership or equality. And that led to a lot of dissatisfaction in marriage. And that that dissatisfaction and even a rejection of that model led to a second phase of marriage, which he calls modern marriage, where there is often a lot of freedom but also a great deal of self-indulgence or entitlement and not much commitment. Um, But Brother R feels like we are now entering a third phase of marriage. And um, I'm going to call that a divine marriage, um, where a divine marriage combines the best of both of the previous phases, the commitment of traditional marriages, but also the freedom and equality and partnership of modern marriage. And I just think that's so beautiful and powerful. And I really like the trajectory that we're on um, in the, LDS Church is that uh, I see a lot of couples working really hard and getting really creative to restructure and redesign their lives to build better partnerships and a more divine marriage. Um, I'll give you just one example. We have a couple 
um, who the husband was serving as the branch president in a branch for many, many years and had a lot of growth and development in that calling. And he was just released. And then uh, now he's putting his law practice on a sabbatical and a hold so that he can go and support his wife doing a teaching fellowship in Spain for a year. And I know that's a big example, but I, I'm seeing this all around me in couples as making changes to their lives, restructuring, refiguring, um, to make sure that both couples are growing, that they feel valued, they're pursuing their gifts, and um, that their coupleship is celebrated. And that's really um, why we created this guidebook, is to help couples as they navigate those changes to go from a traditional to a modern and divine marriage. And okay. I have to say is one of the things that gets, um, one of the things that comes with heightened awareness is your own role in this. So I think it's really easy to point fingers to be like, this is out of line or this is egregious, right? And I think coming from India, there's some significantly egregious examples. But what was interesting to me is when I got into this, I could very quickly turn the finger and point to the ways that I was not showing up as a full embodied partner. And I think that's the strength here is this is not supposed to be um, finger pointing at any marriage or any person, but it is literally to give each of us a chance to evaluate and say, am I showing up as a full partner? And the answer, frankly, is going to be no. (laughs) There's going to be something that we all need to work on. And so having the opportunity to look that in the eye has been good for me as a daughter of God to say, I want to grow up to be a God. And so what, what is the gap between my soul and that? And some of that, a lot of that relates to how do I show up as a full person? What do I need to work on? And it's significant. Okay. So Jennifer, you knew you'd get this question, but the sex question, uh, (laughs) how, how can LDS couples be more sexually equal? Mm, Sure. Well, you know, it means, you know, my my life work has been about challenging this narrative that that women's sexuality exists to support men's sexuality. Right. Or that, you know, many of us grew up in this idea that men are the sexual ones because, you know, that's how men are. And women, given how virtuous we are and desireless we are, are just there to kind of sacrifice for the benefit of the man and his hedonistic desire, lest he be you know, taken off of God's path. So that's the model that many of us inherited, but it doesn't work well for marriage. It makes women and men isolated and lonely because the servicing version of sexuality is painful. You know, no man wants to just be accommodated resentfully. No woman wants to service her husband for eternity for for the love, you know, so... So it's like if you want a thriving marriage, going back to this idea that if we want a soulful, intimate marriage, we want it to be desire based. That's really at the core of romance. Speaking back to Valentine's Day is that I choose you. You're my most important person. I'm invested in creating a good partnership with you. I want a sexual partnership with you, a sexual friendship. And so we have to, to do that. We have to value men's and women's different templates of sexuality. We have to make room for what really creates something satisfying and desirable for the two of us. I'm not, you know, going to be sexual to manage your needs. I'm being sexual because I like to be there with you, that there's something soul sustaining and pleasurable for us both. And it bonds us deeply together. 
that the marital bed can be a deeply sacred space where you're working out your differences and you're, you know, caring for one another. But you have to be in that foundation that men's sexuality is as sorry, that women's sexuality is as important as men's sexuality. Women's pleasure is as important as men's pleasure. And really to allow feminine pleasure to be kind of the guiding principle, to be honest, that's how both men and women both thrive in, in marital sexuality. So the, the workbook sections of, of, of the guidebook are obviously used, have been used by many of the therapists there before, but what kind of feedback are you getting from couples who are starting to do those? Um, some of them, I, we were talking before, a, a little challenging, um, you know, just the, the task itself. What kind of feedback are you getting? I, I would think it would open up conversations that many couples haven't had for years, mm. if ever. It's been so great to get the feedback of people writing a vision statement and articulating and defining their values. People that have been married for decades and haven't ever done that before. And have just, I think, you know, we, like we assume we share a faith or, you know, some of us share a faith. And we're, we share a marriage and, and we feel the same, but no, this is helping couples take a deeper dive into knowing what they care about, what they value, what they hope and aspire for. And, and it's been so rewarding to get messages back of like the challenge, like you mentioned, but also the exhilaration that comes from doing these, these um, practices. And I just wanted to pause really quick. And also, you know, we're so delighted to have Jennifer here. And I, I'm kind of envious that you asked her the sex question and not me, but no, I'm <laughs> kidding. I'm glad. But I, um, and we mentioned Thanks research, but I just wanted to give a shout out and a thanks to Dr. Ty Mansfield. He's the one that created the chart you talked about with compromise, um, but more for collaboration. And then Jeff and Jody Stewart were the other therapists who brought their insight and expertise and their generous gifts to this project. And um, we're so, so grateful that they helped us create these practices for couples. Mm. Yeah. So we should be clear that Bethy and I were not people who knew, we're not experts on marriage. No, we're experts no on ideals. <laughs> like we're, we're clear about what our ideals are, but we quickly got into this and thought we need to know people who know a lot more than us. And so we pulled Ford and the therapist. They each wrote three chapters and that's how we got to these 12 different points that we're talking about. And so in, in using this workbook, you actually get a wide range of kind of therapeutic styles um, to assist you. I, I just had a friend that said she's wanted to go to graduate school um, for a long time. And they just, the family hasn't, hadn't prioritized her growth, her pursuits and, and something that she cared deeply about. And after reading this and discussing it with her husband, they decided that they needed to make that happen. They needed to rearrange their finances and structure their, um, their responsibilities so that she could pursue a graduate degree. And it was thrilling to hear that these, uh, having these conversations and these practices prompted set, you know, rearranging and realigning their families to help her reach that goal. The other contributor was Julie Hanks too, right? Yes. Julie, yeah, yes. those four. Yes, yes, okay. Okay, so last question. What do you hope this book accomplishes? I hope it accomplishes more godlike individuals and marriages. So I truly believe that we are here on this earth life journey to become more godlike. And I think that the reason that our heavenly parents uh, put us into these marriage arrangements is because it's one of the best developmental places you can have. So there's quite literally, if you're functioning in a healthy marriage, there's quite literally nowhere to hide. And I would say that because you can hide if it's not healthy, right? But if you're coming to the table 
And you're sitting there with your partner saying, I mean, literally and figuratively coming to the table, then you are pushing yourself and that other person in extremely robust ways. So my husband always says that everyone used to tell him that he was the most sordid person they knew. You know, that he meditates daily. He reads 45 minutes of scriptures. He works out every day. He never eats sugar, right? Like he's the most (laughs) sordid human being you can imagine. And then he hits marriage with me. And he's like, and it was like an explosion. And he said, I had never been in a situation where I had to, I had to listen to someone before I had to think about it. I had to be pushed and challenged and vice versa, right? Like no one in my business, I didn't get married till I was 37. I'd run a business with a business partner and I had never lost my cool in my business. Like I was known to be the person who's the most like level headed once in 10 years and it like screeched the office to a halt, right? And then all of a sudden you're in a marriage situation where you're being pushed on and challenged and you love this person deeply and the stakes feel higher. And all of a sudden you have to bring your A game to the table in a way you've never had to before. And so for me, maybe perhaps because I came to marriage so much later, I had all these other stages of development that I had worked on and that I thought had I'd managed well. <laughs> And then it literally took like, you know, two weeks of marriage to be like, oh, right. There is so much more I have here to learn. So for me, the reason we wrote this book is because I was clear that I had more to learn. So my goals for this book, they can be for everybody, but they can be for me too, right? The goal for me to use this book is at the other end of this book, the other end of this life, I will be the most godlike version of myself that I can. And to me, that's the ultimate uh, purpose of this earth experience. So we, we don't aim, we don't aim short, right? Like, <laughs> And I'll just add, I, I love that MacArthur mentioned that we hope the book yeah. in, um, enhances individuals and couples, but I also hope that it helps us as a church, as an institution that we will really fully embrace as we talk about God and marriage and family that will embrace our theology and live up to a theology of heavenly parents. I would love to have that incorporated more into our language and discussion and practices. Um, these two things that we hold so dear, God and family and, and, and merit, like that we will, we will talk about and discuss and integrate our theology of heavenly parents into our conversations on those most precious topics. Jennifer, anything to add? Well, I would just say this, which is we have a theology that says we are that we might have joy. The joy is ultimately a part of our ability to grow into more godly people. Because, you know, as we align ourselves with truthful principles and we live truthfully, we find a kind of freedom and beauty in our life. Well, going back to this idea that we want to belong to others and ourselves, if through an equal marriage, we become more able to do that. What I see with the couples that I that start realigning themselves in their marriages in these ways is they start experiencing more true joy doesn't mean that their lives are without struggle, but they start to feel the beauty and the expansiveness in their lives. And if we can use our theology through this book and other, you know, to to create more equality in marriages, to create more joy in marriages, like it's such a great thing to do for families and individuals um, and so much being true to the best in our faith. The name of the book, again, is In the Image of Our Heavenly Parents, A Couple's Guide to Creating a More Divine Marriage. Bethany Brady Spaulding, MacArthur Krishna, and Jennifer Finlayson Five. thanks for joining us today. Thank you. It's been thanks. a joy. Thanks to David Noyce. Always a pleasure. And to producer Christopher Samuels. 
We remind our listeners they can keep up on all the happenings in and about the church by subscribing to the Salt Lake Tribune's free Mormon Land newsletter. Just go to sltrib.com to sign up and we'll talk again next time on Mormon Land. Thank you.